How were you made welcome to recovery? How are you welcoming to others? And how can we be more welcoming? Welcome to episode 215 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Michelle, Heather, and Debbie. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Michelle, Heather, and Debbie, for your contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we at The Recovery Show may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. I want to start with a poem which, to a large extent, is what inspired this episode. In Sweet Company by Margaret Wolfe We sit together and I tell you things, silent, unborn, naked things, that only my God has heard me say. You do not cluck your tongue at me or roll your eyes or split my heart into a thousand, thousand pieces with words that have little to do with me. You do not turn away because you cannot bear to see your own unclaimed light shining in my eyes. You stay with me in the dark. You urge me into being. You make room in your heart for my voice. You rejoice in my joy. And through it all, you stand unbound by everything but the still small voice within you. I see my future self in you, just enough to risk moving beyond the familiar, just enough to leave the familiar in the past where it belongs. I breathe you in and I breathe you out in one luxurious and contented sigh. In sweet company, I am home at last. First, I'd like to express my gratitude to Margaret Wolf for her kind permission to include this poem in this episode, and also to my friend who read it. I will put links in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 215, where you can buy her book, which is titled In Sweet Company, Conversations with Extraordinary Women About Living a Spiritual Life, and also a link to her website, which is www.insweetcompany.com. Thank you again, Margaret. When I heard this poem read, almost every line in the poem just resonated so deeply with my experience of recovery. So I thought I might go through the poem and I think first speak of how I received those experiences early in recovery and in continuing in recovery, and then perhaps go back, reflect on how I have provided, I guess is a word there, those experiences. We sit together and I tell you things. In the rooms, I heard you tell me things that I might not have spoken except in the darkness of my heart. 
And that gave me courage, permission, strength to start to share those things that were in the darkness of my heart that I had thought I had thought could never be spoken. You do not cluck your tongue at me or roll your eyes or split my heart into a thousand thousand pieces. The spirit of acceptance, the spirit of unconditional love that I found when I spoke my truth, when I spoke my truth to you, I was not made fun of. I was not rejected. I was not made to feel less than because you did not cluck your tongue or roll your eyes or split my heart. You took what I said as my truth, even when it didn't match your truth, when it didn't match your experience. You do not turn away because you cannot bear to see your own unclaimed light shining in my eyes. And again, I found strength and hope in our shared experience. I found strength and hope in our shared pain. I found strength and hope in our shared victories. I saw the light in you and I think that you saw the light in me. You stay with me in the dark when I was struggling with personal tragedy, when I came to a meeting and all I could do was cry. You sat with me. You sat with me in my dark and you provided a measure of comfort in your acceptance and your love. You urge me into being by sharing your strength and hope by sharing your small victories, by sharing your failures. You showed me a way that I could be other than who I was, that I could live a life that was less chaotic, that was less unmanageable, that was more serene, that had more love and gratitude in it. By your example, you urged me into being more than I was. You make room in your heart for my voice, and oh, isn't that true? You rejoice in my joy. We share our victories. We share our strengths. We share the little steps that we make into recovery. We rejoice in each other's joy. I see my future self in you. When I was new in Al-Anon, and you shared your experience, strength, and hope. I could see a different way of living. I could see my future self in you, and I could risk moving beyond the familiar. I could risk trying new ways. I could risk that here was a way of living that I didn't understand how it was going to help with my problem to get my loved one sober. But what else was there for me but to try it? Because you said it worked for you. And because you said it worked for you, because I could see that it had worked for you, I was willing to risk that step and that next step and that next step until I am home at last. I was at home in my very first meeting because 
in that meeting, I came to know that I was no longer alone. That here was a new home full of people who understood my life, understood my pain, and loved me in spite of it, or maybe for it, I'm not sure. So that poem just, every line, as I said, every line echoed in my soul. And I knew that I had to share it with you. So how have I lived out this poem from the other end? How have I lived out this poem as not the receiver, but as the giver? We sit together and I tell you things. I have been sponsor to a number of people in the program and just listener for other people. And it is an honor to do so, to be trusted with those things that another person thought they could never share, to be the first person to hear of pains, to hear of sorrows that had lain unexpressed in another person for so long. I learned how to do that here. I learned how to do that because you listened to me. And I was able to pass that gift on. I am able to pass that gift on. It surprises me sometimes that I could be the one that somebody would choose to share their life with in such intimate detail. It's an honor. You do not cluck your tongue at me or roll your eyes or split my heart into a thousand thousand pieces with words that have nothing to do with me. I, again, learned through observation, learned through example, to listen without judgment, to listen with acceptance, so that I was not clucking my tongue or rolling my eyes, or hopefully not breaking someone's heart into a thousand thousand pieces. I do not turn away. I do not turn away, even when I see myself reflected in you. I have been there with you in the dark, and I hope that I have somehow managed to urge you into being into being more into being yourself your true self i rejoice in your joys i make room in my heart for your voice and maybe maybe you can see a future self in me and maybe you can risk moving beyond the familiar in your life and i have seen this happen I've seen this happen with others in the program, and I sure as heck can't take any kind of credit for it, but I have tried to do these things so that maybe you feel home at last in sweet welcome. But of course I'm not perfect, and there are times that I do not hold out that hand of welcome, that I do not open my arms and my heart. I have a story here about one of the ways, at least, in which I can fail to be welcoming. This story is titled, Mullah Nasruddin Feeds His Coat, and it's adapted from an Islamic folktale. Mullah Nasruddin had been working in the fields all day long. 
He was tired and sweaty, and his clothes and shoes were covered with mud and stains. Because he had been fasting all day long for Ramadan, he was also quite hungry. But finally, it was almost sundown, and Nasruddin knew that he would soon be able to eat. The wealthiest man in town had invited everyone to come break their fasts in his home that evening with a huge feast. Nasruddin knew that he would be late if he went home to change his clothes before heading into town. He decided it was better to arrive in dirty clothes than to be late. Oh, what a party it would be, what a feast. As he walked to the wealthy man's home, Nasruddin imagined the delicious foods that he would soon be eating. Dates, lentils, and chickpeas, olives, and bread, hummus, falafel, chicken, and beef, and best of all, the desserts, halva, date rolls, figs, and baklava. When Nasruddin arrived, the wealthy man opened the door and looked Nasruddin up and down scornfully from his worn, ragged clothes down to his muddy shoes. Without a word of welcome, he gestured for Nasruddin to come in and walked abruptly away. Nasruddin joined the throngs of people who were all dressed in their finest clothing. The tables were laden with all sorts of delicious foods, dates, lentils, and chickpeas, olives and bread, hummus, falafel, chicken, and beef, and best of all, the desserts, halva, date rolls, figs, and baklava. Despite his efforts to hurry, the seats were all taken, and nobody tried to move over or make a space for Nasruddin. In fact, nobody offered him food. He had to reach over and around people to get any food for his plate. Nobody spoke to him. It was as if he wasn't even there. The other guests ignored him so completely that Nasruddin could not enjoy the food on his plate, no matter how finely prepared or how tasty it was. In fact, after only a few bites, Nasruddin was so uncomfortable that he decided to leave. He hurried home and changed into his finest clothing, including a beautiful coat. Nasruddin returned to the feast, and this time the host welcomed him with a huge smile. Come in, come in, greeted the host. As Nasruddin entered, people waved and called to him from all corners of the room as they invited him to sit near them and offered him food. Nasruddin sat down quietly. Picking up a plump fig, he carefully placed it into a coat pocket, saying, Eat, coat, eat. Next, he took a handful of nuts and put them into the pocket, saying, Eat, coat, eat. Now he began to feed his coat in earnest, grabbing all sorts of foods. He fed the coat lentils and chickpeas, olives and bread, hummus, falafel, chicken and beef, and best of all, the desserts, halva, date rolls, figs, and baklava. The room became silent as they watched this strange behavior. Soon everyone in the room was staring at Nasruddin, wondering what he was doing. The host hurried over. Nasruddin, whatever are you doing? Why are you feeding your coat in this manner? Well, replied Nasruddin, when I first came to this feast in my old farming clothes, I was not welcome. No one would speak with me. But when I changed into this coat, suddenly I was greeted warmly. So I realized that it was not me that was welcome at this party, but my clothing. And so I am feeding my coat. Okay, so it's a story. It's a cute story. And it has a very obvious point to it. How does that relate to me? Well, it relates to me because when I come into a meeting or somebody else comes into a meeting and I look at them and I don't know them, my first judgment is on how they look, how they speak, not what they say, not who they are, but who they appear to be. And even when they speak, I can get so caught up in how they're talking in how many ums and ers and you knows they use in 
how they circle round and round and round what they're apparently trying to say without just saying it clearly with how somebody just tells the same sad story over and over. And these external manifestations of a person can cloud and skew my vision, my acceptance, my welcome. I'm much more likely to be welcoming to somebody who's like me than to somebody who's very different. This, to me, does not, is not living. The spirit of the poem is not living the Al-Anon welcome. I have to consciously remind myself that a person who is speaking of their circumstance may be the same story every time I hear them. A person who can't seem to get the words out. A person who fills their share with ums and ers and you knows is a person who is trying to express their pain, is trying to express their longings, is trying to express their needs, is trying to express their progress. And I get so caught up in the dirty coat that I don't see the hungry person waiting to eat, waiting to partake of what I might have to give, what I might be able to, what plate I might be able to pass to keep with the metaphor here. That everybody sitting around the table is a child of God. That everybody sitting around the table deserves respect and dignity. It's easy for me to forget that. It's easy for me to get caught up in my own things. And so I remind myself that this person that is annoying me needs to be there and that they are doing the best that they can at that moment. I can welcome that. How can I be more welcoming? There is a a Buddhist meditation, a metta, on being loving, being filled with love and kindness. The version of this that I am familiar with is sung or spoken. The words are very simple. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be whole. And then again, replacing I with you, where you is referring to maybe a person that I'm in conflict with, a person that I'm having trouble welcoming wholeheartedly, a person that I'm angry at, a person that I feel has hurt me. Focusing on that person, as I say, may you be filled with loving kindness, may you be well. May you be peaceful and at ease, may you be whole. And then, once I'm feeling that one, replace you with we. May we be filled with loving kindness. Sometimes, being able to extend that to everybody, may all be filled with loving kindness. So I encourage you to, if you can, get comfortable, close your eyes, speak or sing along with me. May I be filled with 
many of our Al-Anon meetings with. This is from the book How Al-Anon Works. It's chapter 44 in the second half of the book titled A Very Special Way. We say, we aren't perfect. The welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you'll discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way. The same way we already love you. The first song that I chose for this show, which you can listen to on the website at therecovery.show slash 215, is Bjork with her song, Come to Me. I read a short description of this on the internet. It says, Come to me is intimate and sensual, yet it's also a message of nurturing. Come to me. I'll take care of you. Protect you. Calm, calm down. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and our lives this week. Diana sent in a share this week. Hi, Diana here, talking about processing through acceptance and conclusions, coming to terms with an ending or an outcome in which you didn't anticipate, like playing God, because you're saying, well... 
you're, you're making a conclusion, you're making a judgment, like you know the story of this person's life and you know the purpose of their life and the conclusion. But really God is the author. And I think those are the things that we have to decide. And this is what I'm finding in this journey is a surrender and realizing that he's writing the chapter and he can do what he wants. And he is capable of healing and reaching her at any point. And it is obviously her will and her choice that's going to bring about the healing and the freedom. But, um, but trusting him with that and surrendering that over to him. You know, when, when a conclusion happens that, that we weren't expecting can be hard. I myself have had a huge faith in my life since I was a child and really got me through a lot. And I would say that for me, faith was very easy, especially in the journey of it, because you have all this time for the thing to happen. So the conclusion part has been very new for me as far as developing a strength and a character in me of, you know, God, I'm going to trust you because several things have ended recently that didn't go any way in the direction of, of what I anticipated, thought, hoped, dreamed, or wished. And those are things that, you know, you just have to surrender. I think we all want life to be certain and we all want that bow to be tied nice and pretty. And there are a lot of things and times in life when the bow doesn't get tied. You know, I'll probably never talk to my dad again. We'll never have a final conversation. We'll never have reconciliation. I mean, I guess I can't say that for, for sure, because you never know. God's the author. But, you know, you have to be okay sometimes with the mess being a mess and like walking away from the mess. And that, that is really hard, especially for fixers. I think we, we do play God a lot and take, we're overly responsible for things that are not our responsibility. And I don't want to get overly deep in this, but, you know, obviously I've been dealing with coming to terms with accepting, you know, it is what it is. And I have to take the lessons that I have out of it and I have to make the most out of this and I have to go forward and uh, not do the pity thing and, and the sulking thing and all that. I think for me personally, I've come to a place where it's like, I'm either going to be, go the ER way or I'm going to go the Tigger way. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I'm either going to feel like God failed me and he didn't answer my prayer and he didn't heal my mom and this is really difficult, or I'm going to go the Tigger way and say, God has a plan. He's still working. He is able. You know, I'm not author of the universe and, and people. <laughs> you know, like, I'm going to go on my merry way and do my thing and trust that he's working it out on her behalf. And that's the positivity and that's the faith and that's the strength part of it, right? And I think ultimately that is a big charge to our healing, you know, and carrying that light within us and maintaining that light within us of, of optimism and, and hope and positivity. You know what I'm talking about? I just wanted to share one last thing. I was thinking about all this stuff with my mom that I just shared with you and, uh, and, you know, reading the news and lately, I mean, it just seems like the world is falling apart. The stuff that's in the news from the crimes and the political tension and the racial tension and North Korea and Russia and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just like the world is falling apart. And you think on terms of a personal level about, you know, God healing my mom and God healing my life. 
and then God healing the world, it's like, wow, there's so many complicated issues with the world. And how does that even go about getting fixed or healed? Cause it's, it is complicated. And then you, you kind of observe the world and realize there's that frame of thought that people believe that the world can be healed through legislation and law, fixing poverty and, and racial inequality, you know, by passing legislation. And then you have people from school of thought of physicians and doctors and PAs and nurses who believe that through modern medicine, you can heal the world of depression and numerous diseases and addictions and so forth. And then you have the faith and religious section that believes that's nice. You can go ahead and try to do all you're going to do there, but um, ultimately God is the one who's going to heal us. So there's a point where we have to ultimately trust him and surrender and believe that he will heal us. Honestly, I can speak from a personal place in going through this journey of trying to heal my own life, that it kind of has been all the above for me because we are complicated people too, you know, mind, will, soul, emotions, feelings, you know, there's more to us than just our skin. And, um, I think the world is, is similar in that it's, it's many things marrying and joining together. I don't know that we'll find it in our generation, but it is, it is frightening, but I have to, I have to keep my hope and I have to keep my faith and I have to keep my prayers up and carry that light in my own heart. And that's why I like this show because we're able to share our stories and other people can hear that it's possible to have challenges and struggles and to keep going forward and to not give up and to not quit and find a source or strength or a hope or a light, you know, of we can get through this and we can heal our lives. Yeah. That's, I guess what I'm thinking tonight, just allowing God to write the book and going his way and trusting that the story will be beautiful. Stop trying to take the pen from God. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for letting me share. Bye. Thank you, Diana, for that, that deep share. And how was my week? A number of positive things this week and, and some questioning as well. I had the experience earlier this week of walking with an acquaintance who I didn't know really well in that conversation, we came to the mutual recognition that we were both in 12-step programs and wow, the, the conversation suddenly went a lot more real and a lot deeper just with that recognition. Very interesting and wonderful. My wife celebrated her 12th birthday, as it were, 12 years sober this weekend we celebrated with dinner at a new Mexican restaurant with our daughter and her boyfriend. It was a pleasant evening. We sat outside and enjoyed food and conversation. It was great. On the not-so-wonderful side, I had in, in one of my meetings recently, and this is a recurring, unfortunately recurring problem, we've tried to tried to address it by adding an explicit announcement in the opening of the meeting about there not being crosstalk in the meeting about sharing our only our own experience about not speaking to what another person might have said directly. It still happens. It's difficult, I think, because I think the people who do this thing are doing it 
from a motivation of wanting to be helpful, of wanting to wanting to share their own experience, their own strength and hope. But the phraseology is such that it feels like advice. It feels like telling other people at the table what they ought to do. It makes me uncomfortable, partly because I think of of my codependence of feeling other people's other people's discomfort. It's it's a problem because it's a sort of behavior that can discourage people from coming to meetings. I had this experience at a meeting when I was in early recovery of another person at the table speaking directly to me and telling me directly what I should do. And that was a very obvious example of crosstalk. And I did not go back to that meeting because I did not want to have that experience again. If our meetings are to be welcoming, we somehow have to be conscious of this and we need to work in some way to ensure that it doesn't happen or happens less. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure where to go with that. I think it needs to come up at the group conscience, but I'm not sure what we can do beyond what we have done. I guess we might need to speak directly to the people involved in some cases, because I think they're just not aware of how the way in which they're speaking is affecting others. It's a tough one. My meeting on Saturday was first meeting of the month, so we're did a couple of questions out of the Blueprint for Progress. We're in the chapter on character traits, I think, is what it's called, something like that. And the questions that we addressed this this month were about honesty. There were two questions. One was sort of a was a question about can I keep from lying even little lies, something like that. Not the exact wording. And that's an interesting one for me because Although I try to be honest and truthful, there are times when, and this is where it gets tricky, you see, because I may not be exactly, I'm not lying in the sense that I am saying something that is not true, but I am lying in the sense that I'm not saying something that is true. And this usually happens because I feel like if I say the whole thing, that I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings that I'm going to make somebody uncomfortable. And there's two problems with that, at least. One is that I don't really know how the other person feels. The second is that because I am consciously hiding something, I'm consciously hiding part of what I do or who I am. And I'm not talking here about not saying, oh yeah, like I'm an Al-Anon and it's wonderful when I'm just like at a party or something for no reason. And I'm talking about minimizing something. I'm talking about, so maybe after work, I will go with friends and have a drink. And then when I get home, I might say, yeah, I was working a little bit late. Or I might not say anything and just let the assumption ride that I was working a little bit late because I still have this feeling that it might make my wife uncomfortable to know that I was drinking. And she's told me that it doesn't, 
but I still have this feeling. And so I don't talk about it. And so is that a lie? In a sense, it is. I recognize that I do this less than I used to, okay? So I guess that's progress, and that's what I said. It's progress. Not perfect, but I am making progress. And the other question, and I, again, I don't remember the exact wording, I don't have the book with me, it was a, something about being honest about who you are, being honest about yourself with other people. Do you hide part of yourself? Something like that. And, you know, coming right after that first question, well, okay, not completely, but what I think is true now, and certainly was not true pre-recovery, is that I don't try to be a different person with different people. I try to be who I am. And again, I may not discuss politics with somebody that I know disagrees with me because I am conflict averse, but I don't try to pretend that I agree with them. And so again, that is, that's a place where I think there's been real change in me that we're in, in the past, my codependency would have made me try to fit in. I feel more confident in myself. I feel that I like myself more. I feel that I know myself more. And so I can be as much as possible who I am, wherever I am. So that was a really, it was a really good meeting. And there was a lot of good sharing around the table. If you want to join our conversation, if you want to contribute to the content of the podcast, call and leave us a voicemail. 734-707-8795. Call right now. 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at the recovery.show. You can also do what Diana did, which is to record a share using your smartphone and then email to feedback at the recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you, share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of welcome or any other topics. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Our website is therecovery.show, and it has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the music, and other things that we talk about in the episode. And in this particular episode, as I mentioned, we'll have a link to Margaret Wolf's book and her website in the show notes. So I'm going to take a short break before looking at our mail, voice and otherwise. The second musical selection, which is also available on the website at therecovery.show slash 215, is Hello by Kelly Clarkson. I wasn't sure about this just because Kelly Clarkson, kind of, you know, poppy, whatever. But I looked at the words and I felt like they, they speak to what I was talking about this episode. Here's some lyrics. Yes, I stumbled into the night. We're touching, but I feel like you are still out of reach. The people here are buzzing like a bug on a light. I'm feeling like I always see them, but they can't see me. Sentimental feelings never get me anywhere. My heart continues beating. Is there anybody? Anybody? Hello? Hello? Is anybody listening? Let go. As everyone lets go of me. Oh, oh, won't somebody show me that I'm not alone? Not alone.
guys have been sending in the stuff. Lorianne writes partly about the open talk by Cynthia C. Wow, Spencer, I have not heard Cynthia's story before, and I'm so grateful for your timing. I needed to hear another Al-Anon share about using the program to find serenity amidst living with an actively alcoholic spouse. I have found myself running from every relationship the moment there is any sign of alcoholism, addiction, or dysfunctional behavior that makes me feel uneasy. I am isolating myself to an extreme that is not healthy. Also commenting on the previous podcast, yet another fabulous one, I did not get sober in Al-Anon, to free from every relationship where I feel there is some type of alcoholic addict behavior that I am uneasy with. My overly rigid boundaries block out good things, too. Learning that acceptance is about using the program tools amidst the tricky relationships and interactions is more supportive of my growth and recovery rather than using my program to identify things I cannot change and just run away. Perhaps I've been practicing avoidance more than acceptance in boundary setting. Certainly does not keep me open to being teachable. I recently met someone who I sense has a few isms, and I feel uneasy inside. I decided not to shut the door, to ask God for help, and to spend some time with this person with a cautious yet open mind. However, in the time I've spent with him, some really nice things have happened too. Whether it was him or higher power working through him, which is helping me to see that the gifts in life are not about obtaining what I want another person to give me rather accepting what another person has to offer me. I do not foresee this going anywhere long-term, not as a healthy, loving relationship, and continue to suspect he is hiding something. However, being open enough to spend some time with him over the last two weeks has allowed me to enjoy some fun outdoor activities, swimming and biking, and learn more about my own inventory list, especially when I found myself focusing on his. Thanks, Lorianne, for that share. Diane wrote with a question, Spencer, thank you for your podcast. I have learned so much. One of the difficulties I'm experiencing is within our meeting, where one person continually cross-talks and doesn't stay on topic. Some of her comments are made in direct opposition to what another member shared regarding powerlessness. It is so uncomfortable. She challenges others on biblical comments made, such as, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. And she responded, that's not biblical and you don't find it anywhere in the Bible. She is not new to the program, and she knows full well the rules about sharing. What should I do? Well, Diane, as you heard, I'm encountering a similar situation in one of my meetings. One of the things that I recognized in the most recent of those meetings was that I believe this person is trying to be helpful, but that the tools that they have about sharing their own experience and their own understanding are not fully developed. That they, they, they know one way to do it, which is by giving advice, by saying, you should, and they don't know another way to share. It doesn't help in the moment. Well, it helps me a little bit because it helps me to detach from my perception of their motive and to try to hear the message that they're trying to transmit to detach the way in which that message is being delivered from the message itself. But it's still uncomfortable. And I know from what other people have said to me that they are also uncomfortable with it. I don't believe that it's my job to do something about it, but it does seem to be coming to the point where I might want to bring it to 
the group conscience and say, I'm observing behavior that I believe is not in alignment with the group conscience of this meeting and see if in the wisdom of the group, we can come to a way of lovingly addressing it. So when you say, what can I do? I think my answer there is, I'm not sure that it's yours to do, but that if the expressed conscience of the meeting is that there should be no crosstalk, then clearly that needs to be somehow addressed more clearly. I don't like conflict, so I don't want to be the person who says, hey, you're cross-talking, please stop right now. Although I have done that a couple times when various people, and it's not just one person, there have been a number of people who have engaged in direct cross-talk, directly looking at somebody and, and in, in at least one case saying something entirely inappropriate for the meeting. In a couple of those cases, I have spoken up right away and said, hey, you know, that's cross-talk and we don't do that at this meeting. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I would bring it to the group conscience and say, this this behavior makes me really uncomfortable. I would like for the meeting to address it somehow. What ideas do we have? If you can. Akila left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. It's Akila. I was calling about the My Body, My Codependency episode. Um, and I wanted to thank you for talking about it. Um, I related a lot to what you talked about. Um, I was diagnosed with chronic daily headaches, which have gotten significantly better since I've been in recovery. In fact, I, um, I still get headaches and they have to be managed, but they're nowhere near the fog I was walking in. And I remember talking to my doctor and she was surprised at the medicine that I had been prescribed for it. And she said, were you depressed? And I said, well, that was for headaches. But, of course, it's also possible I was depressed at the same time. And I also had, like, back pain. I think someone called in and talked about that. And I had other issues. Of course, I always was miserable, and my life was a mess. I also wanted to respond to the young man who wrote, I think it was Jacob, talking about violence. And I just wanted to say that I have heard people share about how they were violent, they were not the alcoholic, and they were violent. And I've heard it mostly in the speaker talks like that you post and that people can find on Recovery Radio where they have a ton of them. And I've heard a lot of women talk about how they were violent. I haven't heard that many men talk about it either towards their um, loved one or to their pets. So I would just encourage him to listen to more speaker meetings so he can hear some more about it hear how people have overcome it and how they can talk about it now. Thank you, and have a wonderful day. Thanks again for your service. Bye. Thanks, Akila. I think that's really, and both of those are important, to understand how sometimes the unmanageability of our life can reflect in our bodies and about the violence, because I, I think that's something that is also not talked about, and maybe it should be. So now wrote, hi. I just wanted to say, I really enjoyed hearing the podcast about adult children of alcoholics. My name is Sonel. I've been in recovery for eight months and I'm working step four. I attend one Al-Anon meeting a week. There are no ACA meetings in my hometown in the UK. It's difficult as a single mom of two young daughters, two and a half and one year old, to get out in the evenings. So I'm so excited to discover your podcast, which I can listen to anytime. I recently have been missing my ACA meetings. I used to travel to one. 
so I'm really glad to find your website through Googling ACA Podcast. Thank you for your service and hard work. I can't wait to hear more. The program is making an immense difference to my life. I have an Al-Anon sponsor as I haven't met with anyone who's experienced an ACA and has done the steps. I wanted an experienced ACA sponsor, especially with help around what I'm doing now. If you know anywhere I can find more resources around this, then do let me know. Many thanks. So now, I think I had a, a very similar question from a listener, I think in India, like a couple weeks ago. And unfortunately, my answer is, I don't know. I'm not in the ACA program myself. I do also want to lift up, I think it was last week, Akila left a voicemail um, noting that there is there is good support for adult children in Al-Anon. It's not, it, it's not the same as what you find in ACA, from my understanding. Maybe a listener who's in ACA can write in with some help. There are ACA meetings online. Intherooms.com, I know, has at least one ACA meeting. Now it's in the evening in Eastern time in the U.S., and so that would be, I guess, five hours different from the U.K., which might make it difficult to attend. But you might go look at intherooms.com and see what, what they have for online offerings. Colleen left us a voicemail. Hi, Spencer. This is Colleen, and I wanted to call and just share some thinking about the episode dealing with uh, being an adult child of an alcoholic with Emily, and I really appreciated that and kind of, I had assumed that I didn't qualify for that type of group, but once I listened to her sharing, especially with regard to the laundry list, a lot of that just resonated with me. One of the things that had been brought up was the idea of the generational aspect of these kinds of behaviors, whatever the dysfunction might be. And it reminded me of a of a quote by one of my favorite thinkers and writers. His name is Murray Bowen. And he developed a theory of it's a science human behavior called family system theory. And his saying is, from generation to generation, we bequeath more than our family jewels. We bequeath emotionality. And I just really liked that, and I thought that that resonated a lot with what Emily had to say. In any event, I found a, an ACA meeting um, in my area, and I'm just really grateful for this episode and, I guess, my willingness to listen to it because I had assumed that it would have nothing to do with me, but I found a, a meeting in my area, and I, I'm looking forward to checking that out and adding that to my recovery. So thank you very much. Thank you, Colleen. Thank you for expressing the value that you found in that episode. Um, and thanks again, as always, to Emily for helping me with it. An email from Christy. She says, Spencer, I started listening to your podcast about two weeks ago. I listen as much as I can in the car, cleaning the house while running. I am divorced from a prescription drug abuser and remarried to an alcoholic. I never imagined I would be in this place again, but here I am. I had attended Naranon meetings for about 18 months while married to my ex. I'm just now getting back into the 12 steps. I find it hard to get to an actual meeting, and I'm so grateful for this option. You do a fantastic job covering relevant topics. I so need the reassurance that I can live a happy life despite my alcoholic husband. I've listened to a few of them more than once. I just want to encourage you to keep doing this. I have such a long way to go. 
I feel like I'm stumbling. I feel like I'm not doing it right. I set a boundary and then break it. I try to keep my thinking in line with Al-Anon and find it hard not to slip back into patterns like I'm trying to control the situation. I feel like if I love him enough, he will choose me. He will change. This is such a painful process of learning. My head knows he needs to hit bottom, but somehow I keep enabling him in one form or another. One persistent thought is that he needs more love, not less, so practicing detachment is very hard for me. I feel need a wall up to do that, and I just can't seem to keep from breaking it down myself. One big question I have surrounding that exact thing is the detachment. Do I only practice detachment when he's drinking? What if he has one or two sober days? Sometimes I can't even tell if he's been drinking, so it's hard to know what to do. It's very confusing to me. So again, thank you for what you doing what you do. You are helping me. You are helping so many others. You are appreciated. Christy. Oh, detachment. It is, it is a tricky topic. It's one we keep coming back to. Your question here, do I only practice detachment when he's drinking? And I think ideally, detachment is a way of being in relationship that can actually sometimes allow us to be even closer than we were when we were entangled or enmeshed with the other person, but that makes actually for a healthier, loving relationship when we can get to the point of practicing detachment lovingly. I'm going to try to illustrate this with a visual image through the medium of voice only, so stick with me here for a moment. Take your hands and interlace your fingers together. And let's say that your left hand is the other person and your right hand is you. Your left hand is your loved one and your right hand is you. When your fingers are interleased, wherever one hand goes, the other has to go as well. And so when you're enmeshed, when I was enmeshed with my loved one in her illness, in his illness for you, you go where the illness takes you. You go where the illness takes them. So try to move one hand, the other one has to go with it. And and so, and if you if you try to go in opposite directions then there's a struggle. Now, take your hands, straighten out your fingers, and put your hands palm to palm. Okay, Now, they're still close. It's not separated. Detachment doesn't have to be separation. Sometimes that's the only way to practice it, but this is where we're aiming for. So when you can detach lovingly, you can still be close. But if that left hand wants to go off somewhere, your right hand doesn't have to go with it. You can make a choice. And if you want to, if your right hand wants to go something somewhere, the left hand doesn't have to go with it. So you can be close, but not enmeshed. You can be close, but not dragged down by the disease of alcoholism. So this is the ideal that we're aiming for. Sometimes, and this was certainly true for me, early in my program, the only way I could detach was with anger or with indifference. All right, I don't care if you drink. I'm just going to shut down that part of my self that that cares. And you go do what you're going to do, and I'll just sit over here and, and be separate. That was the only way that I that I knew. I didn't understand how I could love the person without having to be dragged around by the disease. And that took a while. and took a lot of reading. It took a lot of work. 
one of the things that actually helped me a lot in that was attending open AA speaker meetings, which there was a series there is, it's still going. It was a different speaker every Saturday night. And, you know, that was our Saturday night for a while when my wife first got into recovery. And then um, when she relapsed, I kept going. And what those meetings gave me was two things. It was an understanding of alcoholism as a disease, an understanding of alcoholism as something separate from bigger than my loved one. And it gave me hope because everybody who was speaking was an alcoholic who had found sobriety. Some from a lot further down than we were. It brought me to a place where I could love her. I could have compassion for her, but not enable and not be dragged around by her disease. So I don't know if that helps or not. We do have some episodes on detachment. If you go to the recovery.show, there's a search box. If you're on a computer, there's a search box sort of in the upper right. If you're on a phone, tap on the menu at the top and tap on search and you can search for detachment and find Episodes where we refer to detachment, uh, probably some meditations from back at the beginning when one of my co-podcasters was writing daily meditations, something I haven't been able to keep up, and hopefully find some help there as well. And there's there's a lot of help in the literature, too. Thanks for writing, Christy. Another email. Hi there, I'm Barry, alcoholic and Al-Anon member. I'm sitting in my pickup at a drilling rig in West Texas watching the moon set. We run 24 hours a day. It's 3.40 a.m. and I can get pretty cray-cray with little sleep and too much time to think. Smiley face. I want to personally thank you guys for the time and effort required to produce these podcasts. What cool service work and a great way to carry the message. Best regards, B. And thank you, B, for writing. And I'm, I have this you know, this picture in my head of you sitting in, sitting in your pickup truck in the dark with maybe there's like an oil rig with lights or something. I have no idea. But, you know, it's cool. It's a cool picture. And getting cray-cray with no sleep. Yeah, and too much time to think. Oh, my God. Don't think. Email from Peg. Hi, Spencer and Eric. Spencer, this show has been a godsend on so many levels. There have been so many times that your voice has calmed me down and helped me gain perspective. I am in the middle of divorcing my alcoholic husband after 25 years of desperately trying to make things work. Letting go and learning that I cannot change another person has taken so much of my life. Eric, I'm the same kind of sad as you are right now. If you ever want to just email someone about how you feel, I totally get you. I've been separated from him four times, and this is the second time I have filed. I have three nearly adult daughters, and I know this is the right thing to do. It doesn't make 3 a.m. any easier, though. I'm not trying to be inappropriate in any way. You're just the first person I've heard that I think feels the same way that I feel. I hope this makes even a little sense. Wishing you both every good thing, Peg. Thanks, Peg, for writing. I can assure you that there are people in the rooms who feel exactly what you're feeling, and maybe they're not talking about it. And that's our fault, if we're not talking about it. And it just so connects to the poem. It so connects to the poem. Thank you for writing. I want to thank Mad Hugs for his music, Teleportationism, which I've been using as what we call bumper music, the beginning and the end and the little breaks between segments of the show, almost since we started recording the podcast. And we are using it with permission. And I will put a link in the show notes. 
to his Bandcamp site where you can listen to and buy his other music as well as this one if you love it. So thanks again. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses which run about $60 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Michelle, Heather, and Debbie did. We've put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, anything you order from Amazon after clicking on one of the links will help us. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us going. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it, whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to therecovery.show, or just listening. We are here for you. The last song that I picked is, well, the clean title is Effing Perfect. It's by Pink. It's it's sort of, um, it's a song of acceptance. It's a song of affirmation from a slightly irrespective point of view. The chorus essentially says, don't let anybody ever tell you you're nothing less than effing perfect. It's a kind of welcome. I thought it connected. I like the song. What can I say? Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.